History is full of amazing stories and memorable people. But we don't care about them. No hits, deep tracks only. Some of the most influential people in the world have been completely overlooked or just plain forgotten. We're digging deep into the history books to bring you their stories. I'm Phil. And I'm Matt. We're not historians. We're just two guys who enjoy a great story and plenty of laughs. This is History's B-Side. Today's B-Sider is the inventor of the airship. So we have not been shy about the fact that we are both, at least originally, from Ohio. No, we haven't. <laughs> I mean, you have lived in other states. I've pretty much only, well, I mean, I've I mean, definitely only lived in Ohio. Here's the thing. That's a stretch. Like, I only lived in Pennsylvania outside of Philadelphia for like almost a full year. Like, it wasn't even a full year. So, I don't know. I don't claim to have lived in Pennsylvania ever. I honestly sometimes forget that I did. So, I, yeah, I guess I consider myself having grown up fully in Ohio. So what makes you most proud to be an Ohioan? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Is it the the great tradition of the Ohio State University Buckeyes football? As all no. good Ohioans? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't have any problem with that. Honestly, I was really into Buckeye football in middle school. But no, I wouldn't say like as of right now, I'm proud to be from Ohio because of the Ohio State Buckeyes. <laughs> I honestly, it's kind of hard for me to put into words briefly, but like because of both being from Ohio and that part of Ohio where like the the Rust Belt is and also because, I mean, my grandfather was uh, a, a steel worker and a blue collar worker. So I don't know. I, I guess if I had to choose something that made me proud, it would be that I, I, I don't know. I feel like people from that area just because of the history have a little bit more of this characteristic grit or like, I don't know, grit or hard work, but I, I don't know. I guess I just, I take pride in my work ethic and looking back, I see that as both something in my family and also something geologic, like where I'm from, not geologic, um, geographic, <laughs> like where I, I feel like that's a product of being from that area and being more resilient. And and so I guess that's what I would say if I had to pick something to describe the entirety of Ohio. But when I was trying to think of this answer, I, I couldn't pick like one specific thing. I mean, I think it's interesting that you mentioned like hardworking, blue collar, grit, because those aren't necessarily specific traits of an Ohioan. I mean, I feel like that, that sort of classification right. is attributed to the Midwest a lot. But those yeah. qualities are actually going to be like part of the identity of today's topic. And while he is from Pittsburgh, it's not the Pittsburgh that's located in the Midwest. It's <laughs> down in Texas. But I guess getting back into our, our Ohio roots, like, I, I mean, Ohio has a lot that it can be proud of a part of Ohio's culture and history. There's been a lot of famous yeah. Ohioans, lots of presidents, lots yeah, of, lots uh, of presidents. LeBron James, famous Ohioan, a lot to be proud of there. Um, <laughs> but I guess 
one of Ohio's biggest claims, and as we can probably assume we're going to talk about this a little bit with today's episode topic, is that Ohio credits itself as being the first in flight, which is obviously laying claim to the Wright brothers who are from mm-hmm. Dayton, Ohio, some more famous Ohioans. And I guess that's that's always like, I wouldn't say it's a point of pride for necessarily you or me as being from Ohio, yeah. but like it is something that Ohioans try to well, claim for themselves. Know, the weird thing to me is like it, it's claimed they, I guess, and their feet are claimed by two states. Because like that, I think first in flight is actually on the North Carolina um, license plate with a picture yeah, of the right brothers. I think you're actually right. I, I think uh, North Carolina claims first in flight, but Ohio is what birthplace of aviation or something like that. Yes, I think you're right. I that phrase sounds familiar. And that I I feel like that's almost kind of backwards a little bit. I mean, I guess it's just biz- I yeah. Mean, I, don't I guess know. it's just so, the idea. I guess it's trivial. Like, what if they decided to do their flight in Virginia? <laughs> like, would Virginia get to claim it now? Like, I, mean, I, don't know. I guess, but. They, they were from Dayton, so they're Ohioans, and we get to right. claim it. Exactly. I think we get to claim it no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> Suck it, North Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> but still so, listen to us. <laughs> yeah. So, obviously, we're going to talk about uh, planes and air travel a little bit in this episode. And, you know, we never miss up a chance to talk about traveling on our podcast. So, uh, you want to talk about travel a little bit? I, I don't travel much. You don't? No. Well, nobody's traveled much in the last year and a half. <laughs> That's <but> true. <laughs> now, let's not talk about our traveling as far as where we've been, because I think people have heard enough about the like two trips that we've taken. <laughs> to Italy, and then me to Italy <laughs> again. <laughs> but uh, maybe more about our our journey getting there. Do you have any like fun or maybe terrible plane experiences that you want to share? Hmm. It's a deep topic. <laughs> I, I, I love, so for whatever reason, I absolutely love planes. I love airports. There's something about like, I don't know. I have like a handful of very early memories of being in airports and like they were just associated with excitement and fun. And so like the, even the smell of like airplane diesel fuel to me is like, I don't know. It's that like getting up at five in the morning to go on a trip feeling that like, it, I don't know. It just gets me excited inherently because of the memories I associate it with. But I just uh, across the board love most things about flying. I love like, I don't know. I'm just fascinated by the entire thing. It's super cool to me that we can, you know, shoot metal tubes down a runway <laughs> and like fly across the country. My worst travel experiences, I would have to say, I guess like, it's not that bad, but like missing f- missing a flight. I had to take a flight home from Portland to Ohio for oh, Christmas yeah. two years ago, and I missed my flight. And then the flight I got after I missed my flight ended up getting delayed, so I had to spend the night in Dallas. But honestly, like outside of that, just flying, I guess, Spirit and Frontier, where you have to pay for everything, <laughs> including oxygen, <laughs> I would list. Um but in general, like most of the time when people are like, oh, I hate flying, it's terrible, it's so inconvenient. I'm just like, honestly, all the inconvenient things about flying to me are just like fine because I'm so excited to fly that I don't really care. I think it's funny that you said you actually really like flying and the airport experience and all that stuff. Because I think most people don't like being in airports. 
or having to go through the whole process of getting to your plane. But yeah. I also actually really like airports for like yeah. a completely different reason. And it's just that like, I, I had this conversation with someone, but like just once you've gotten to your gate and I like to get there early, but like once you've gotten to your gate and you can just sit down and know that you have an hour or whatever until you have to do anything like that's it. You have nowhere else to be, nothing to do. Right. Even if something were to like bother you or stress you out, you can't do anything about it. So you just kind of sit there and I don't know, it's like kind of relaxing in a way. But maybe I'm just weird and a psycho. And <laughs> I mean, I, I, I totally understand that. I think a lot of people would find that a difficult, if not weird, reason to be excited about it. Because just sitting and relaxing isn't easy for a lot of people. But I, It's not I for totally me either. That. And I think the anticipation of the trip is part of the excitement too. But just yeah. knowing that like your vacation is supposed to... Be, typically when you're traveling, you're on vacation. And that's supposed to be your break from being at work or whatever. And when I'm right. at the airport, if work calls me... I can't do anything about it. I don't have my computer on me. I can't leave and go help with something. So I'm just right. there. Just there waiting to get on the plane and go to wherever is supposed to be fun that I'm going. Yeah. And I've had that conversation with, with somebody about like everybody, not everybody, but people ask me before a vacation that they know I'm taking. They're like, are you excited? Are you excited? And honestly, like I'm not excited at all for a trip I'm taking until I get to the airport. Like, and it's not that I don't know it's coming. It's just like if I'm at work the day before going on a trip, like I'm at work right now. I'm mm -hmm. not excited. I mean, right. I mean, it's not that I like hate work, but like I'm not excited for my trip right now because I'm not on my trip. It hasn't happened or occurred. So I guess I, I have that same experience where like once I get to the airport and through everything, I'm like, this is this is good. So you're obviously not afraid of flying either. Have you ever had any like really rough experiences? Like, have you had any flights that you were actually nervous being on the plane of what might happen? I've only had one flight. Well, two. I had one when I was much younger in like middle school where it the pressure changed for whatever reason really like it, it genuinely hurt my ears and that wasn't fun. Luckily, that was an isolated incident. But <laughs> um, I took a flight back from texas and our layer was in atlanta and flying into atlanta the um the turbulence was so so bad that like it felt like the plane was dropping like a hundred feet yeah. and just slamming into the ground and there were people around me with like their cross necklaces out like yeah. rosaries doing prayers and i was like this is insane people are praying right now on this flight so that's probably the only time on a plane i've been afraid I do get nervous on the landing, though. Every time we land, it's, like, always so, like, intense that I get a little, like, uh. The only experience I had sort of like that was actually when we went to Phoenix, and you flew back to Portland, but um, mm -hmm. I was right. obviously back to Cleveland. And so we had a direct flight from Phoenix to Cleveland, but the closer we got to Cleveland, it wasn't raining, storming, but it was just insane amounts of wind to the point where we could literally feel the plane being whipped back and forth. And, like, we were rocking side to side we were dipping and ducking it was just it was crazy and we circled yeah. the cleveland airport a couple of times before they made the announcement that they had to reroute us to cincinnati so we had to fly another <laughs> like hour or so um to get down to cincinnati and then we landed and they told us we could either get off the plane and find our way back to cleveland ourselves or Jesus. we could hang out for an hour or two and then try to fly back to cleveland and they would try to land it and a lot of people left i think like almost half of the people on the plane got off 
which kind of made the return flight a little scarier, having less weight on the plane. Um, That's true. But we, I can imagine that. Yeah, we, we didn't wait too long. I think we were only sitting on the plane for an hour before they attempted to uh, make that flight back to Cleveland. And uh, first of all, only time I've ever gotten anything free on Frontier was a free flight from Cincinnati to Cleveland. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, and we did go uh, back to Cleveland. We did end up landing safely. It was a very rough flight. It was a very bumpy landing. But that's that's the one time that I literally felt like I don't know what's going to happen. Like I, re- I, I trust that we're going to land safely because I trust our pilots and I trust, you know, the amount of engineering and technology and how much that has developed over the hundred years, right. over a hundred years we've been flying. Um, but it was kind of a scary experience, just not knowing yeah. what might happen. And uh, obviously once we landed, everyone was <laughs> applauding and thanking the pilot and the flight attendants as we were getting off the plane. <laughs> Pretty scary experience. Yeah. Oh, no, I mean, I definitely wasn't at ease in the terrible turbulence. Yeah. My most recent, when I came back just like a couple of days ago from Portland back to Las Vegas, the, I don't know what the pilot was doing, but when we came into the airport, he was doing like, I don't know how to describe it. He was like going up and then pulling down enough that like the blood was kind of rushing to my head. And he did it two or three times to the point where I was like, I don't mind flying at all. I don't have problems with like balance or vertigo, but I was like nauseous and ready to be like, I was done. I was like, can we stop doing this like up and down motion? It's like going over hills in a plane. (laughs) Before we totally ruin flying for any listeners we have that are already don't like flying. The reason I was asking about, (laughs) you know, some of your negative experiences is uh, we're thinking about some of the first people to fly airplanes or any form of flying and uh i can't even imagine what that was like to know that not only do you have a chance of risking your life or your health and well-being in a aircraft that has never been tested and doing something that's never really been done but yeah if it doesn't go well kind of your your life's work is also being destroyed and your credibility and things like that so it's going to play a big part of this story today is just the first experiences of humans flying and you know what could go right what could go wrong with that so sort of some of the people behind that and what kind of actually led me to finding this episode topic was when we did our live episode which can you believe that was what almost three months ago now i can't that's insane (laughs) that's just like wow i can't believe how like how long we've actually been putting these episodes together already and that our live episode was almost three months ago now but uh at some point actually during the quiz segment you gave me a question that had something to do with flying a plane and i was like were planes really big then because this was the prohibition episode so really the first flight had taken place about 30 years prior to uh the the timeline that we were talking about in that episode um so it made me think about you know when were planes first flown and Obviously, we know about the Wright brothers, but who came before them? And kind of the the story of who would be the B-side of building an aircraft. So we know about the Wright brothers. We know that they are famous Ohioans, although Wilbur Wright was actually born in Indiana. So maybe Indiana is half the birthplace of aviation. Uh, but the two brothers grew up in <laughs> they grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and they ran a newspaper and a bicycle shop before they took an interest in flying and designed their first airplane. 
The Wright brothers certainly weren't the first humans to actually fly, but we do give them credit as being the ones who sort of built the first airplane and had the first successful flight. Really, the whole reason we do that is because they just had terrific marketing, like way better yeah. than anyone else who was attempting to fly at the time. They took photographs of everything that they did. They invited the press and a bunch of public figures to come to their test flights and actually be firsthand witnesses. And they also had a, a feud with the Smithsonian, sort of at the height of their popularity when they were first kind of accomplishing these feats. And that gave them tons and tons <laughs> of publicity. Just people knew who the Wright brothers were because they were the ones arguing with the Smithsonian over who was actually the first to achieve flight. They also importantly introduced these breakthrough designs, things like curved wings that were designed to lift the aircraft up into the air. But more importantly, they documented everything that they did. They had records, photographs, blueprints for their planes and their aircrafts. And like I said, credible witnesses who were there to actually say that they saw the plane fly and to kind of report that story and make sure people knew that it had happened. Yeah, I'm actually honestly surprised at how important that last one is. Like just in researching like some of the things you talked about and then also researching for the quiz questions, it's like there's so many people who like may or may not have fled first that like they're they just nobody was there. Yeah. Like oh, there's no credible witnesses. It, this guy just said he did it. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a maybe just a culture shock compared to what we have today. If anyone achieves right. something for the first time today, there's instantly video of it and it's on social media and there's news media covering it because we just everyone has a camera on them and everyone is a reporter in some sense as long as you have a Twitter account or whatever, like you are reporting information anytime you post or share anything. And obviously right. a different time then Orville Wright wasn't managing his Twitter feed to uh, show all their flights. So they needed uh, <laughs> the press and some credible witnesses to be there actually documenting it. So what we actually credit the Wright brothers with achieving is the world's first sustained and controlled flight of a human powered heavier than air aircraft. And the two key parts of that are sustained and controlled, even though those words are kind of subjective. It's not really like a clear definition of what those mean. But their, their tests were so meticulously planned and recorded that they wanted to make sure that people understood what they defined as sustained and controlled flight so that they would be credited with this achievement. So are there any details about what their definition or the definition they were going for of, of sustained and controlled? I mean, were there were there certain conditions they needed to meet or like a distance or a speed? Not really, but think about it. How would you define sustained and controlled flight? I guess flight that went on long enough that it, it wasn't just gliding to a stop, like I assume previous aircraft did, and also could be moved, could be steered, could be yes. steered up, down, left and right. So you kind of got... And sort of the key components that people would consider for sustained and controlled flight. Number one, you have to lift off into the air. There wasn't really like a height requirement or a distance requirement, but you had to be able to lift off into the air, obviously sail through the air. Um, steering is a big yeah. part of showing that you can control the flight and then being able to land it versus just it sailing or gliding through the air and kind of eventually crashing to the ground, whether smoothly or roughly, but you yeah. are in control throughout the process of lifting the craft up, moving it, and then setting it back down. And that was sort of the big hurdle that a lot of the early uh, 
flyers, early pilots <laughs> struggled with was n- not necessarily getting up in the air, but maybe getting it up in the air without using like a propulsion, without using like a ski lift or a momentum type uh, propulsion, but actually using a machine power propulsion and then being able to steer and control it while it's in the air and then still land it safely. So while we do give the Wright brothers credit for this first sustained and controlled flight, it's important that we do discuss some of the people that did actually come before the Wright brothers, since obviously this is the B side, we want to know some of the other names, people that maybe did come first before them. The Wright brothers themselves, while they were operating their bicycle shop, they weren't always set on this idea of flying, but what really inspired them were the glides of Germany's flying man, Otto Lilienthal, which took place in the mid-1890s. They really were fascinated by the way he just glided through the air. So he wasn't like on a a machine-powered aircraft, but he did these amazing feats where he glided on essentially a hang glider (laughs) through the air, and that (laughs) gave them the idea of humans flying, and that kind of really just motivated them to start looking for ways that they could accomplish this feat themselves. As I mentioned earlier, they were at odds with the Smithsonian secretary, whose name was Samuel Langley, and he flew an unmanned steam-powered aircraft in May of 1896. So this obviously came uh, about seven years before the Wright brothers accomplished their feat. But his aircraft was obviously unmanned, so it wasn't really the same type of accomplishment that the Wright brothers would later achieve themselves. Yeah, I feel like that's a pretty big leap to be like manned and unmanned. So part of the the disagreement that he had with the Smithsonian was essentially the fact that his craft could have been manned or that he maybe had the technology to accomplish a manned flight, but either he didn't do it or he didn't do it in a documented way that the Wright brothers Ah. would eventually do. So that was kind of a... I guess the sore subject that led to their feud was just the fact that he was promoting in the Smithsonian his aircraft as being the first flying machine, the first airplane, but really he hadn't accomplished everything that the Wright brothers had. So they got into all kinds of disputes about the fact that they should be the ones who were being recognized for this accomplishment rather than Samuel Langley. Hmm. The steam-powered flying machine that was similar to what he flew was actually invented by a French naval officer named Félix du Temple de la Croix in 1857. That's actually, he got the patent to design this steam-powered aircraft in 1857, but he didn't actually fly it until probably a decade later, a couple decades later. Mm. But this type of aircraft required a takeoff ski jump and never actually flew a human. So was it actually able to be, I mean, earlier you said sustained and controlled, and I don't know if that applies to this, but was it able to be controlled or did it just kind of glide off the ski jump to a hopefully safe landing. I'm not too sure about this specific one. Um, I would assume that it was more just a glider and maybe was designed to have safer landings, but because it wasn't piloted by a human, like a human on board, I don't think it necessarily needed to be controlled in the same way that an airplane or an aircraft would be. Okay. There were similar early feats of flight that were achieved throughout the late 1800s by the French, the Russians, Germans, New Zealanders, and Americans. And we'll talk about a few of them before we get into our main topic. One of the more notable ones was a man named Augustus Moore Herring, who was an American. And he applied to patent a man-supporting motorized controllable flying machine in 1896 and eventually tested it in October of 1899. But it was more representative of this modern hang glider rather than anything that was 
more resemblant of a modern airplane or aviation. So again, not really in the same realm of what the Wright brothers would eventually achieve. Probably the most common claim to the title of being the first to fly before the Wright brothers was a man named Gustav Whitehead. He was a German immigrant to the United States, and he built both steam and gasoline-powered planes, and it's believed that he flew them in 1899 and 1901, uh, respectively, but he didn't have as reputable sources to substantiate his claims the way that the Wright brothers had. So he's kind of one of those people that were lost to the wayside. He he actually might be a good B-side topic if we wanted to do another yeah. uh, plane invention topic, but... I just thought that today's story was a much more interesting one, so we're going to put a pin in Gustav Whitehead until maybe sometime <laughs> down the road. <laughs> I feel like they all could have been B-siders. Yeah, honestly, anyone that we talk about in this first section here, they kind of fit that theme of people that came before the Wright brothers. But obviously, for one reason or another, they just their achievements were dismissed or forgotten, or they just didn't have the credibility that the Wright brothers had to become this first person to fly an airplane. Yeah. So today I uh, decided to pick a topic who was someone that I felt had a legitimate claim to being the first person to invent a human-powered aircraft. He also, I thought, had the most unique aircraft design and one of the more interesting stories. So we'll take a short break here before we get into today's actual B-Sider, and we'll learn a little bit about Reverend Burl Cannon, the inventor of the Ezekiel airship. Oh no, Matt's gone British. Hello, good chaps. Liking the history, are you? Matt's promised to do the rest of this episode in this poorly represented British accent. Unless you go support the show on our website right now. Oh, bollocks. Got myself into a pickle. But seriously, we just wanted to take a minute to tell you some ways you can support the podcast on our website, historiesbside.com. The first and most direct way you can support our podcast is by signing up for a membership. You can join at any monthly contribution level, but we suggest $10 to start. Though, please feel free to pick whatever fits into your budget. A membership will get you access to monthly boneless episodes, show notes, future episode cues, surprise gifts, and more. We also have on there our merch shop, which includes things like t-shirts, hoodies, hats, drinkware, bags... Stuff for adults, kids, and dogs, so you can rep your favorite history podcast everywhere you go. You'll also find extras, including free stickers, bookmarks, and postcards. You can suggest an episode topic, or submit a question about the podcast, one of our episodes, or even about us. That website again is historiesbside.com. And now, back to the episode. All right, so as I mentioned right at the end there, we're talking about Reverend Burl Cannon today, who is the inventor of a machine called the Ezekiel Aircraft. And he was one of the first people to make this claim to inventing a flying machine, a human-powered flying machine in an effort to create a sustained, controlled, human-powered flight. And we'll get a little bit into Reverend Cannon's background here. He was born on April 16th, 1848 on a farm near Coffeeville, Mississippi. I feel he like was I the would, son. I was just, I was going to say I feel like I would like Coffeeville. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that has anything to do with its name, but 
It really, fit. I I Sounds meant to like look that up to, to see if like they, I don't know, Coffeeville grew. They don't can't possibly grow coffee beans. They in can't Mississippi. grow. There's no way they grow coffee because it's too far north. But maybe I'm mispronouncing. I don't know. It. Maybe it's like Coffeville because it's. Mississippi I mean, either way, it's French. Like, <laughs> yeah. Even if it's like a. I don't know, name for something else. It's a funny name. It's spelled Coffeeville, so he's from Coffeeville. Yeah. He was the son of William Cannon and Margaret Lamb. There's not too much about his early childhood, but it did say that he grew up working with wood, steel, and machines, which kind of goes into his sort of mechanical... He wasn't considered an engineer. He wasn't... At least nothing I read said he was actually an engineer, but he's definitely one to tinker and became an inventor throughout his life. So he actually did study mechanics at Mississippi College, but he also became a Baptist preacher, which is why he's Reverend Burl Cannon. Like I said, there's not too much about his early life. I actually found everything that I know about his pre-invention life from just a genealogy survey that someone was researching him and came up with all his marriage records and things like that. So they were able to pull a little bit about it. So We know that he was married at least three, possibly four times. Um, Some of the records are a little fuzzy on that, but he was never divorced. His earlier wives all died. He had one daughter via his first wife, and then through his third wife, he had two daughters, a son, and a stepdaughter. So he has a a small family. The third wife is the third or fourth, so the last wife (laughs) is the one that he was with really the longest. She did die before he did. Um, but he was still around that family throughout the rest of his life. I think even in his later years, he was still living with his stepdaughter. So yeah. a family man, just kind of a hard to really track down all the details on his early life. While still in Mississippi, he made his career as a sawmiller. But at age 30, he moved to Longview, Texas, because they had a lot of hardwood forests there. And he saw an opportunity to start a timber business. But he was pretty well known for his strong understanding of engineering principles, and that led to him developing a whole bunch of different inventions. It's actually believed that he held patents for six different inventions, things like uh, marine propellers, a windmill, and even a camera that photographed people as they stepped onto trains. (laughs) Is that like, was there a big need for photographs of train passengers? Why was that an invention? Well, I don't know. Why did he invent that? I didn't find a whole lot on that specific invention, but I I kind of had the same questions you did when I was researching it. And I have to think it's like maybe a security thing. Yeah. But I I mean, you have to think that there's probably like train crime at this time in history. But my other guess would just be for something like, I don't know, tracking how many people are actually Uh, traveling by trains, things like that. So I I don't know if that's really the reason. I did try to find some of his patents. I spent some time on the uh, U.S. Patent and Trademark website, and I searched his name, and I actually did come across one patent that was filed in 1920, but it wasn't the patent wasn't issued until December 20th, 1921, for a cotton harvester. And this is something that will be part of his story very late in life. Uh, as I said, he he was born in the late 1800s, mid 1800s. And a lot of his story happens around the time that the Wright brothers were, and all of America was interested in developing a aircraft flying machine. So that's right around mm-hmm. 1900. His, he continued to in, have these inventions throughout his entire life. 
Despite being a sawmiller and an inventor, he also continued preaching on the side. Like I mentioned, he was a Baptist minister. He mostly preached in one-room schoolhouses in small East Texas towns that didn't have a church themselves. A lot of these towns were very small. They only had a maybe a few dozen to a hundred people. So they might not have had a church and he would just travel between the towns every week and mm. preach in a different place, trying to reach more people and making, you know, religion accessible to them as well. There were rumors about him that claimed that he spoke eight different languages and that he spent time in the foreign service prior to the civil war. Now, Considering that the Civil War began four days after his 13th birthday, I kind of doubt that part <laughs> is true. I didn't find anything to substantiate the speaking eight different languages part, but I also didn't find anything that was counter to that, so who yeah. knows? <laughs> Maybe. Hmm. He sometimes said that he was, quote, rich twice, poor twice, and married four times, which I think is kind of a joke, but... Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> he's just kind of like an interesting character, and I think that maybe as a sense of humor, maybe it's a little bit of like, I don't know, satirical. But the point sure. of all this is really that it's just hard to tell how much of him is really true and genuine. That's not to say that he's a con man like Gregor McGregor or that he spun all these stories. Um, <laughs> it's really just that it, it's hard to find solid information on him because he he worked a lot, he moved around a lot, he was never famous in the way that the Wright brothers were, or even some of our other B-side topics. Like he's someone who doesn't have a Wikipedia page dedicated to him. So I really yeah. did have to like scrounge through some old articles and some old records to find more information about him. Like I said, a lot of the, the dates and family history that we know are just based on census records and his patents and things like that. Even really his biggest achievement, which we're going to get into a lot more of is kind of questionable as far as its legitimacy and whether or not it's really a true story. Yeah. So I think it's best if we present the topic, present the facts as we know them, and we will let our very intelligent, very discerning listeners to the History's B-Side podcast kind of listen to it and then do their own research and decide whether or not they believe that he invented the first flying machine, the first human-powered aircraft. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've let them, we've let our listeners make decisions before. And they're a smart bunch. They're capable of making good decisions, like listening to our podcast. Exactly. So this is That's a confirmation right there. It's a great time to jump in and say, listen very closely <laughs> to the rest of this story. I mean, I know we're, I don't know, a little over a half hour in probably, but we're going to get into the important stuff. So listen, and then send us an email or <laughs> so follow listen. us, find us on social media, and let us know what you think. Let us know if, you, if you're on Team Reverend Burl Cannon or not. So, as I mentioned, his aircraft was called the Ezekiel Airship, but his story starts a few years before the invention of it. In the late 1890s, Reverend Cannon became interested in this idea of human-powered flight and he began to develop plans to design his own flying machine. And because he was a, a devout Baptist minister, his inspiration came from the Bible. It came specifically from the Hebrew prophet Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel is recognized by Christians and Jews as the author of the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. So we'll get a little bit into this background because it's going to kind of explain the design of the Ezekiel aircraft a little bit, and obviously the name. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. 
just sit tight and listen to a little bit of uh, biblical history here, if you will. So Ezekiel, the book tells a lot about his visions. He's a prophet, so he'd have these visions where he encountered God, and then he would prophesy God's judgment and future blessings upon Israel. So while he's basically having these visions and sort of dictating them to the people of Israel, it's likely he didn't actually write the book of Ezekiel. It was probably um, a scholar or someone that was around him at the time that kind of documented all of this and actually did mm. author it. But the book is in his name because it, he's the the star of the show and the one who's having these visions. So that's kind of the background on the book of Ezekiel. But the main vision that inspired Reverend Cannon was actually Ezekiel's first, uh, which is described in Ezekiel chapter 1. So I'm going to read a little bit here from that first chapter of Ezekiel. I'm just going to pick out the verses that are important to this story. Not to feeling feeling as an obligation here to not say that we should cherry pick the Bible, but just for the sake of, you know, right. This specific instructions on building an aircraft, these are the verses that really inspired <laughs> Reverend Burl Cannon to build this ship. So, and the the version I'm using is um, because I'm a good Protestant, the New International Version. So uh, if you're following <laughs> along at home in your Bible, you'll not be as confused. So Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 to 6 read, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures, in appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Okay. Sounds like a, a heavenly vision so far. Uh, the next few sure. verses, like I said, I'm just going to pick out the ones that describe the actual structure, but uh, the next four verses go on to describe the, the creature's faces. E- each of these four creatures had four faces, the faces of a human, a lion, an ox, an eagle, and the creatures all had two sets of wings, so two that were upper, so four wings, really two that were upper and two that were lower, and all the wings touched each other. So the creatures were all very close together, basically. The way I'm viewing it is in kind of a square, I guess, Mm -hmm. and that does sort of play a role into his eventual design. So we'll pick back up in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 15 to 21. This will really describe the structure that motivated Reverend Cannon. And those verses read, As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved, and when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. It sounds honestly like a helicopter, like at least in its like mechanical movement. But honestly, if you'd read this to me with no introduction, I'd have never guessed it was from the Bible. You gotta spend some more time in the Old Testament, Matthew. It it sounds like it sounds like a Harry Potter creature. It's got four <laughs> heads, all these different creatures. I mean, yeah, it, it's definitely interesting. I mean, it's it's a 
biblical heavenly vision. And there's a lot of these when from it, the prophets in the Old Testament and a lot in the book of Revelation yeah. uh, that talks about these sort of heavenly creatures or, you know, things that are sort of the supernatural. Um, so yeah. it, it's definitely interesting. I find it, maybe this is, this is a uh, very modern viewpoint of religion, Christianity for me, is that like, we don't spend a whole lot of time focusing on these prophets in religion today. We're pretty much focused yeah. on the gospels and the new Testament, things like that. So, um, it's, I guess, not as surprising that a Baptist minister from the late 1800s would be very <laughs> focused on Ezekiel. I just wouldn't personally have read that and thought, this is a blueprint for a flying machine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely not. If you had told me the Bible contained instructions for an aircraft, I would have disbelieved you. Well, that is why you are not the inventor that Reverend Burl Cannon was. Clearly not. So just from this description, Cannon develops his airship design. He essentially viewed Ezekiel 1 as an instruction manual for building a human-powered aircraft. And actually, as he was building this, his first model, he was featured in an article in Scientific American on October 12, 1901, where he clarified his belief that there is a purpose in every word of the scriptures. So he literally read this and viewed it as, what does this mean? How can this be applied to me? And it's that this is his design. This is a way that we can achieve flight. Like he saw the creatures and the way that they were lifted up because of the wheels around them. And he said, Mm -hmm. I can use this wheel design to lift humans up into the air. In the same article, it's quoted as saying that Ezekiel's plans are the first that he, Reverend Cannon, ever worked with in which he could suggest no improvement. So, always the tinkerer, he always was looking for ways to make machines better, but he could not improve upon Ezekiel's design for some sort (laughs) of flying contraption. (laughs) Motivated by his favorite Old Testament prophet, in 1901, Reverend Cannon established the Ezekiel Airship Company. He had three full-time employees, and his company was funded by $20,000 in stock certificates sold at $25 apiece. He also convinced a local businessman named P.W. Thorsell to let him use the top floor of his foundry, which was located in Pittsburgh, Texas, to build his model. So let's talk a little bit about the Ezekiel airship's design. It had a 26-foot three-part wing, which was made out of sailcloth, and then the, in the center of it, it had four sets of wooden paddle wheels, each placed within larger double wooden wheels. So I've looked at pictures of this. You included some on the outline, but I, I also looked up some online. And maybe you might answer this later on, but were the paddles, like the inner paddle wheel, was that simply because of the biblical instruction for the inner wheel within a wheel? Or was that was there a purpose to the paddles other than just to push the aircraft on the ground? The paddles are actually slightly smaller than the outer wheels. And you're right, this is basically his wheel within a wheel or wheel intersecting a wheel that was directly from the scripture. Um, But the paddle wheel was slightly smaller. So I believe that the outer wheels were really used to help sort of roll the aircraft along as it Mm -hmm. took off. Um, And then the paddle wheels would actually be what created sort of the propulsion, the, the wind draft to kind of get the aircraft up in the air. 
So it, it, oh, okay. it gotcha. kind of operated like a paddle boat. And when I say that, I don't mean like the things that the park where you go out on the lake and you pedal really hard, right, right, but right, like right. the, the big paddle boats that you might picture. Like a like, Mississippi. Yes. Yeah. Ship. Like think about Huckleberry Finn or something like that. Um, yeah. Where you have the giant paddles that kind of churn the water. Only this would be four of them inside of other wheels that were more churning the air to get the, the gotcha. aircraft up in the air. Interesting. I'm actually surprised that worked at all. <laughs> I am too, but <laughs> like just paddles. I would have never expected that to take off the ground. <laughs> I mean, I guess we'll, we'll see if it worked or not. Yeah, that's true. The wheels were driven by a four cylinder gasoline engine, which was actually built by Cannon. They were controlled by a single pilot who would be seated in the center of the airship and operating the wheels through a series of levers and he believed that the wheels could attain a rotation speed of 400 to 1200 rpm so rotations per minute which is really do fast you, is it i was going to ask you do you know anything about that like can you compare it to anything else or <laughs> explain how fast that is <laughs> so i think we've talked about this probably in the helga meyer episode that like neither of us are really car guys so i can't like right. compare that to something in an engine but using something that i'm familiar with which is baseball uh, there's at least in the, the more recent news of today, if you are a baseball fan, there's been a lot of talk about like spin rate on baseballs. So yeah, comparing it to like a, a typical type of pitch, I guess, uh, a changeup pitch, which most major league players would throw, uh, has an RPM of about 1500 on average. So slightly slower than the spin of a baseball, a pretty common baseball pitch. So it's not yeah. going to be anything common to like comparable to, I don't know, like a legit a car fast baseball pitch and probably, I don't know. I guess I don't have any sense of like what RPM would be on anything inside of a car engine, but that that's a pretty good speed. Like 400, I would say isn't very fast, but if it really did get up to 1200 RPM, that's a pretty good speed. Wait, I mean, for, at the very least, it was six rotations per second, which is really fast. Right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and like, I mean, at the very fastest, it was 18 per per second, which is, I mean, that's for, for something of this time, I feel like powered by a little gasoline engine is right. pretty solid. Right. I, I now understand more how these paddles may have created <laughs> momentum. Right. So this whole aircraft weighed just over 400 pounds, which that's also a big point in a lot of the design of these ships is that they should be, they're, they're classified as heavier than air, which is really, I yeah. guess, the distinction between a glider and an actual aircraft is that it had to have some kind of weight to it that it could still get up in the air and be flown and controlled. Right. So do you know how heavy the Wright Brothers craft was? I don't. Off I could probably look that okay. up real quick. It's okay. I just wondered how they, how theirs compared in, in weight because I assume that was a, a big part of whether or not things flew. The right flyer was 604.1 pounds. So, okay. So it was just slightly, slightly lighter, heavier. But... Yeah. I mean, the Ezekiel airship was slightly lighter than the right flyer. Right. But th I feel like that's probably the range that people were looking for in this time because you knew sure. it had to be obviously significantly lighter than anything that we fly today, but still was going to have some. <laughs> some weight to it and some, you know, meat to it if it's going to be able to eventually yeah. carry a human and be able to maneuver itself in the air. The design of the Ezekiel airship was to take off horizontally in the way that an airplane would, but it would land vertically like a helicopter. 
So the way I'm trying to imagine this, and I guess we should say that a podcast is probably not the right medium to describe the design of an aircraft, especially coming sure. from two guys who are not engineers. But we'll definitely post some pictures of this when we get to our uh Honestly, like everybody this. who's listening to this is probably listening to it on some sort of device. And if you just Google search Ezekiel craft, <laughs> like or Ezekiel plane or whatever, Ezekiel airship, you'll get a picture of it, which will like I guess at least for me, helped a lot in terms of interpreting how yeah. this thing might have flown. If you're just listening, it's going to be super confusing as to what this thing is. But if you get... So there, there is one picture of the original airship that you can look at. And it get, it's like, it's really cool to see, but it isn't necessarily the best to like actually sure. understand it. But there are models that have been built that you can look at that give you a pretty clear understanding of like what these wheels looked like and where the pilot would have sat. Uh, so you can kind of get an idea of how it actually would have operated. It would have taken off by essentially rolling down a, a runway and then once it picked up enough airspeed that it would essentially lift off the ground and i think essentially you could just use the the engine or shut off the engine to make the paddle stop spinning and it would sort of float down to the ground and hopefully land sort of gotcha. gently <laughs> okay yeah i mean the way i look at it or the way i've seen it the shape it is it almost a seems like if it was just dropped in the air it would just float to the ground kind of like a leaf and just yeah rest. I, I think it almost like would turn into the type of glider thing like it, it's definitely different than yeah. a glider but it would just kind of sail until it came to a more gentle landing and i actually saw mm. in in one of the things that i read that the best way to describe it is just like a very large box kite like the not a kite that you would fly that okay. you bought from the dollar store but like one of those actually yeah. constructed kites that has some sort of three-dimensional aspect to it right so reverend cannon believed that he could build a model of the ezekiel airship that could eventually transport forty-one thousand pounds of cargo which is Jeez. part of why he was able to get so many investors into the project because they saw it's quite a bit more than his well i think i i don't think that would have been his first model of it it would have been right um a plan to be a much more durable longer lasting one once he could prove that his model was able to be flown. Yeah. But that you kind of understand now why investors were so into this and about funding the project of building this aircraft. And there was a lot of excitement locally in all the East Texas towns. They were, people were very interested in seeing how it was being built and wanting to see it fly someday. So much so that it kind of delayed the process because there were always people coming in to see it. And Cannon, being the businessman, began to charge 25 cents admission to view the construction. <laughs> Still, it was obviously a difficult project, and the completion date and final model kept being pushed back and delayed. So some of the investors actually did start to pull out, and he began to really run short of funds as he was going through the process of building the airship. And Cannon knew that he had to show some form of success, or he would completely run out of money on the project. He would have really nothing left to keep his project going. Yeah. So on a Sunday morning in November of 1902, there is not a specific date recorded for this, but the Ezekiel airship was taken out of the foundry for a test flight. They took it to a pasture in Pittsburgh, Texas, near the foundry where it had been built, and Burl Cannon decided that he himself was too heavy to fly the airship, so they chose a slimmer man, who a foundry worker named Gus Stamps, was chosen to be the, the <laughs> pilot of this first test flight. I feel like it's kind of throwing Gus under the bus if things go wrong. 
I mean, also, I just realized that Gus under the bus rhymes, and that's the the third time I've rhymed something goofy in, in this <laughs> podcast. I mean, at the end of the day, it's still Canon's invention, so right. I guess if things go wrong, he could blame the pilot, but really, it's his design. And <laughs> that's true. Gus's take a lot of uh, a lot of faith in Canon that he built a successful flying machine here. Yeah. <laughs> So Stamps fires up the engines, the paddles begin to spin, and the airship was lifted up into the air. According to eyewitnesses, the airship raised to a height of 10 to 12 feet and then sailed forward for about 160 feet before Stamps became concerned with the harsh vibrations of the engine, shut it off, and gently lowered the aircraft. Still, the Ezekiel airship had achieved human-powered flight more than a year before the Wright brothers would attempt their invention at Kitty Hawk. Unfortunately, though, Cannon did not demonstrate what investors had hoped for, which would be a controllable airship capable of transporting a payload, because they didn't quite get as far as they had hoped, and uh, it really wasn't that sturdy. (laughs) So they they, investors really didn't see the the I guess business benefit to continuing this project. Cannon, however, was not discouraged. He uh, wanted to drum up support for his project and obviously some cash as well. So he immediately took the Ezekiel airship on tour. He loaded it onto a flatbed rail car and took it to Texarkana, Texas, where Cannon would give a lecture on the construction of his aircraft and its ability to achieve this flight. From there, it would head to St. Louis in preparation for the 1904 World's Fair. Now, the World's Fair was actually announced to, uh, in 1903, so that, that even though it was the 1904 World's Fair, it, it started its, I guess, festivities a whole year prior. Hmm. And in an effort to create excitement for the World's Fair and capitalizing on the American enthusiasm for achieving human flight, the organizers of the World's Fair offered a $100,000 prize to anyone who could demonstrate a sustained controlled flight. Do you know if anybody else was in competition with him, like serious competition, or that was, I guess, slated to go to the World's Fair and compete for this prize? I don't know who else was trying to get their machine to the World's Fair, but as we talked about in the first half of this podcast, like there, there's obviously a lot of people at Several this time people, who are yeah. trying to come up with their own inventions to be the first to achieve this human powered flight. So I'm sure that there were, I think the whole reason the world's fair even offered this prize is just knowing that there were people who were trying right. to achieve it already. And there would be so many people at the world's fair that they would be able to, you know, actually see one of these inventions achieve flight while they're there. And of course, this prize appealed to Cannon, who was still trying to make something of his Ezekiel airship, so he wanted to get it to the World's Fair and demonstrate it there. Now, of course, because this is the History's B-Side podcast, we have to have a sad (laughs) aspect to every single one of our episodes. Always. I will say, though, that unless I'm forgetting something that I researched, I don't think any of our main characters, like, die horribly in this episode the sad part of this one is just that the ezekiel airship never made it to st louis i Mm. do think that they made it to texarkana but somewhere around that city and you know shortly after making it there they encountered a really intense windstorm while it was on the rail car and it blew the airship off of the rail car and destroyed it oh no (laughs) yeah his (laughs) first model was completely destroyed by this windstorm and never quite made it to St. Louis. Cannon was not yet discouraged. He returned to Longview, Texas, and began constructing a second model, which he completed in 1911. The second model, however, was 
also destroyed when it flew into a utility pole on another test flight. Man, this guy can't catch a break. Yeah. (laughs) So, human-powered flight, not as easy as it sounds. (laughs) After losing his second model, Cannon abandoned the Ezekiel airship project, saying, quote, God never intended that this airship should fly. No. It was in the scripture. Come on. Come on, Cannon. Well, I guess it it requires... Perseverance. I was going to say some heavenly intervention that uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe he wasn't getting on his airship. <laughs> That's fair. Now, like I said earlier, there is some legitimacy questions about Cannon's flight here. And there's just, I guess, a few inconsistencies to his story that are the reason that we're not real sure and don't give Reverend Cannon the credit as being the first one to achieve this human-powered flight. The first thing, and probably the, the biggest glaring thing, is that there were no photographs of the flight. Mm. There was press coverage, but it was more after the fact and coming from people that claimed yeah. to have witnessed it. There was no coverage of the actual flight. There was no uh, no reporters there, no newspapers. You'd think that if they were going to test it, they would have had someone there to kind of get the publicity of the event. Right. But no one took any pictures. No press was present. Canon, I guess, was a little bit maybe paranoid that there were spies trying to copy his design or maybe trying to (laughs) work against him. So he was fairly secretive of the whole process, but you know, it's kind of was to his undoing if he did achieve this flight that there was no one really there to see it. Sure. There were only a few firsthand witnesses that were actually there. It was just a few adults who had worked on the project or at the foundry and then a handful of kids who happened to be playing nearby and, Obviously, none of those first-hand witnesses are alive today to kind of corroborate the story. But some of the kids, you know, continue to grow up and <laughs> retell their stories throughout their life, even as late as the 1960s when some of these kids were much later oh, wow. in their life and still living in the area. Yeah. They would still tell about the time that they saw the Ezekiel airship fly. Obviously, any any stories that we have now are people who are from Pittsburgh, Texas, that just kind of relay the message because it's Heard an important story, part yeah. of their history. Some other accounts of the actual flight claimed that Cannon himself wasn't present to see it fly. It took place on a Sunday morning, so he was likely preaching somewhere else. And that's also another reason why Gus Stamps would have been chosen to be the pilot. Did the test flight have to be on a Sunday? (laughs) Did he schedule it intentionally so? You know, I don't know. It it really wasn't said anywhere why they chose a Sunday. You would think he would have at least wanted to be there to see his airship fly. Right. I kind of wonder if maybe some people that were there were just like, let's test this thing while <laughs> while the reverend's <laughs> out. <laughs> and they took it out of the foundry and tried to fly it. And I'm tired of working on this. Let's see if it works. Yeah. I would be kind of mad if I was him and I they did that without me being there. But yeah, I'm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and then just some of the other questionable aspects of this is just that no part of the the ship, no part of its mechanics were ever patented. There were no blueprints that existed for the Ezekiel airship. Of course, the blueprints were Ezekiel chapter one. So why did he need other blueprints? But he actually did have some written plans for building the airship, but even those were destroyed in a fire in 1922. So there are really no existing remnants of the Ezekiel airship. I think it is weird that there's no patents. Like he already had patents for other things. You'd think this would have been one of the things he was most focused on getting a patent for. Yeah, I thought that was weird too. And 
like I said, he held what, like a half dozen patents. So when I yeah. searched the, the patent records website, I only found the one for a uh, cotton picker. And it's just kind of like, I, that makes me question whether we're just missing records of patents. Because if you were to search now and right. you typed in someone's name who holds a patent, it'll give you the, the actual like digital documented listing with their name record. When I searched for Burl Cannon, it linked me to sort of a PDF that had been scanned of a very old record. So there obviously isn't like oh. digital copies. So like if you searched Burl Cannon and you pull up the one record that I did find, it doesn't show his name on it until you actually click to see the, the PDF record of it so his name isn't like typed in digital form anywhere it's just like a scan right. of a paper that says burl cannon on it so i i'm curious why i couldn't find more of his patents if he did have more than just the one but if he was familiar with the patent process already why didn't he do it for his airship right yeah anyway after he gave up on his ezekiel airship project cannon went back to work both as a sawmiller and a minister he also continued to invent, we talked a lot about his cotton picker now, but he was actually working on taking that one a step further by building a combination cotton picker and bull weevil destroyer, which was actually <laughs> an invention he was working on up until the day that he died. Mm. He passed away suddenly on August 9th, 1922 at the age of 74. Never got to destroy the bull weevils, huh? <laughs> Hopefully someone continued that legacy on for him. I, I looked them up. I think they're only still a problem in Texas, in fact, but they, they are largely eradicated That's in the cotton industry. Great place to be inventing a bull weevil destroyer then. Yeah. As we mentioned, there are some modern day replicas and models of the Ezekiel airship. In 1986, local craftsmen actually built a replica, which is now on display at the Northeast Texas Rural Heritage Center and Museum, along with some other artifacts that were related to the Ezekiel airship and reverend canon's bible which is displayed open to ezekiel chapter one was the replica built based on plans or the the bible verse or was it simply a best guess i think it was what this built like? based on the one existing photo that they do have it's kind of a grainy black oh, and white okay. photo um yeah. but they kind of got the idea for it i actually read that the model that they built or the replica that they built is significantly heavier than the one that he would have built i think i read hmm. that it was over two thousand pounds and obviously we know that the oh, one wow. that he supposedly flew was only 400 pounds so quite a bit larger <laughs> yeah but like i said you can look up pictures of it and it will give you a better idea of what his airship actually looked like and how it could have achieved flight now i'll leave you to make your own decision about whether you believe Reverend Cannon was the first person to achieve human-powered flight by inventing an airplane of sorts. But <laughs> most historians today agree that Cannon's original design for the Ezekiel airship might have been capable of lifting off the ground and sailing through the air, but it would not have been this sustained, controlled flight like we talked about with the Wright brothers. Yeah. So was he the first in flight? Probably not. I think it's more like Buzz Lightyear's idea of falling with style. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad you made that reference. Yeah, he got up into the air, but you know, it didn't really say whether how much he could steer the airship and then right. obviously it wasn't controlled enough that they were able to like really land it on their own terms. <laughs> right. Well, it almost seems like in this era there were so many people trying to fly that like a first 
record is it ends up being kind of fuzzy, but I think another reason, in addition to the marketing, like you mentioned, that the Wright brothers would have been, I guess, more popular is that they made, I guess, certain steps in terms of these parameters that we're talking about. Like it was controlled, it was steerable, um, all of those things. Whereas Ezekiel and the other examples that we've talked about and that I looked up seemed a little bit more of a stretch in terms of being like this controlled apparatus that you could get into. Yeah. With a lot of these, like having the witnesses does matter. Having the publicity does matter. So I think with a lot of inventions, there's probably a lot of B-siders because it's the ones that we know, the ones that become famous and are patented and mass produced and replicated to turn into things that we have today they're probably similar designs to the ones that came before them that just weren't as popular or maybe weren't as successful. So with right. probably most inventions, you could say, who did this first and find a B-sider that we can later do a podcast on. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Are you ready for your aviation quiz? If it's going to be centered around aviation, I'm going to do terrible. If it's centered around Burl Cannon, I feel like I feel like I read everything that exists about him on the internet because it's hard to find stuff. So that's not good because two of them are just aviation and then one is about the book of Ezekiel. <laughs> Great. Let's get this over with. <laughs> All right. We'll be right back. bake do you like history do you want to learn the history of the things you bake then you should listen to hot oven time machine the podcast where we dive into the history of baking and try out recipes past and present hi i'm joseph a master amateur baker and i'm monty a master baker in training every episode we go back in time to learn the history of baking then we bake and taste our favorite recipe of that baked good We have some laughs and enjoy chit-chatting and learning about our favorite foods, all while exploring the rich history of baking and our time-traveling oven. Join us every other Wednesday to learn the history of all your favorite baked goods. All right, welcome back. So as many of you know, we like to end each episode with a short quiz to test out our host to see what he's learned during the course of his research, and also to give you guys a fun way to test out your own knowledge and see what you might have learned or already knew. So today we'll do a couple questions about uh, first in aviation and maybe even take a stab at some biblical trivia. How do you feel, Phil? I feel like I'm not going to get the biblical one and it's going to make me look bad. I don't think it'll make you... I mean, I think we can all accept that the Bible's a big book, and this is like an Old Testament <laughs> story that probably yeah, isn't deeply covered. Going back to what I said earlier about how today's Christians focus deeply on the New Testament and not so much on the Old Testament <laughs> <laughs> prophets. <laughs> yeah. And also, based on our conversation that we were having before we started recording today, I still have something about bull weevils up on my screen, and I feel like that's not going to help <laughs> me on the trivia here. It was almost a, a quiz question. so for your first question we've talked a lot about first in flight and we talked about how the wright brothers flight and 
even Ezekiel's, had certain parameters they had to meet. But going all the way back to the first human flight without, you know, the sustained and controlled part, can you name the first confirmed human flight that was accomplished, both the person and or what aircraft they used to perform this flight? Oh, um, I have no idea. Is it a name that I should know? Like, is it? I would be astounded if you knew the full name, to be perfectly honest with you. It's a long name. (laughs) Okay, then, you know what? I actually feel like I may have come across it because I, I definitely remember like an older name that was abbreviated to just like the last two parts of the name or something like that but Mm -hmm. there's no way i'm going to remember it to know it and since we're just shooting in the dark here i'm going to guess that his vehicle was a hot air balloon that is correct really the hot air balloon (laughs) also known as a montgolfier balloon after the man who i assume invented it was the vehicle in 1783 the pilot was jean-francois pilatre de rosier not so lots of French I words. I, <laughs> I wouldn't expect you to have a four-part French name memorized. You know how good I do on those French names. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's interesting, even in looking up like this this answer and this question, there's differing accounts of like the first person to fly. There's lots of people, even going as far back as the 500s AD, that were reported to be flying, but it all came down to that proof part that we were talking about where there's no flying versus falling with style (laughs) exactly and there i mean a lot of them were just there weren't and there was no evidence there was there were no pictures there was no documentation it was just a rumor right like we've talked about yeah for your second question we talked a bit about the wright brothers and even though this wasn't an episode about the wright brothers given the extreme shortage of uncovered information about Burrow Cannon. I figured I'd test your knowledge on the A-sider a little bit. So the Wright brothers were mainly known for their aviation work, but before their foray into airplanes, they were bicycle mechanics, and they had a bicycle repair company. Can you tell me the title of this company? Was it not just like Wright's bicycle shop or something like that it's pretty close it was right cycle company or right cycle exchange was the original first name right cycle exchange can i give you a trivia question about the wright brothers and their yes cycle shop yes have you been to kitty hawk i this is a random question and random timing but no i have not have you been there it's interesting it's definitely worth any more to that (laughs) yeah no i just wondered if you had been there I mean, tell us about it, other than just interesting. I mean, it's it's just like the the way they have it set up. There's a little track that they took off of on the beach there, oh, and okay. it's. I mean, I don't know. It's it's just a cool place to to see where it all happened and to learn the history. I just wondered if you'd been there because I know you've been to North Carolina a couple times. Yeah, no. But you were more on the yeah, we were on side, the western I side. I don't think I've ever been to the coast of North Carolina. All right, your trivia question about the Wright brothers and their bicycle shop. Oh, boy. (laughs) Where is it located today? Dayton, Ohio isn't a good enough answer. (laughs) It's not in Dayton, Ohio. Oh, really? Yeah, this was weird to me because um, I actually almost talked about this when I was planning out the episode, but um, 
every time we talk about the Wright brothers being from Ohio, it always like throws this weird curveball in my brain because the Wright brothers like childhood home and their bicycle shop is located at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. Really? Yeah. <laughs> what? Like, I even read one of the initial people you mentioned, one of the first in flight is actually like mentioned by the Michigan Board of Tourism or Michigan Promotion because their first flight was in Michigan. I can't remember which one of the the people it was that you mentioned, but I don't know, but I like when we were younger, speaking of like traveling and vacations and stuff, um, and my <laughs> parents always taking us to do historical things. Like we went to Michigan and went to the Henry Ford Museum. And I remember like seeing the Wright brothers home and bicycle shop. And then there was probably like two guys that were actors who were pretending to be the Wright brothers and like putting on some kind of show or something like that. But like, I yeah. know the Wright brothers are from Ohio and I know that they had their bicycle shop in Dayton before they built their plane and took it down to North Carolina. But like, there's always this association in my mind of the Wright brothers in Michigan because I know that's where yeah. I saw their house and their bicycle shop. And apparently I think it was like 1937 or something, but Henry Ford just had a interest in the Wright brothers and bought their home and bicycle shop and moved it to Michigan. <laughs> that's so strange. I, like, I was trying to find that before potentially putting it in today's episode and like find yeah. out why Henry Ford bought their house, but I couldn't like, find the right Dang, answer to that's that. a good trip i wish i would have thought about it. that's a good trivia question yeah. <laughs> all right to move on to your third and final question so canon's inspiration for his flying machine came from the book of ezekiel specifically from the vision ezekiel had of this you know four-headed winged creature but at the time he supposedly had this vision he was an exile in what biblical city oh man i should know this this is why you read around <laughs> the scripture and not just specifically what you need for whatever you're doing it's not like a curveball quite like it's not a really hidden biblical city um i don't know i'm just gonna say jerusalem but i'm that's probably wrong <laughs> if you had to guess like a backup to jerusalem huge Huge city. I don't know if it's a huge city. It's definitely not a huge city anymore, but... Oh, was it... Okay, so... I don't know why I want to say Tel Aviv, because it's not like Tel Aviv, but there's a city that's very similar to Tel Aviv that I know Ezekiel was in. It was Babylon. <laughs> I'm He dumb. was in exile in Babylon. <laughs> um, and one of his... One of his prophet... Not prophets, but one of his prophecies was to deliver the redemption of the exiles that were housed there of which he was one i'm gonna get a text from my dad after this episode publishes <laughs> i mean to be fair i just read all of this off of the internet so <laughs> it's not like i read deep into ezekiel to find this no i, I mean i don't i don't remember what i read that was like it, it wasn't Tel Aviv, but there was a city that was very similar in name. And I was like, that's the only thing jumping out to yeah. me that's like close to Jerusalem. Those are our trivia questions. This was a hard week to do trivia questions for some reason. Like it's a major topic, but anytime you have these Burl really Cannon like was... lesser known, yeah. like really lesser known people, it's hard to find stuff that are about like their actual story and experience because there's, yeah, it's like piecing stuff together of what you actually can find just to make the episode happen. 
Right. I mean, it's part of why we're doing it, right? It should be fine to hard. Yeah. <laughs> it, it should be hard to find information <laughs> on these people. Yeah. I mean, we do the research so our listeners don't have to. Exactly. But I would be interested to see what people think. I mean, obviously, Cannon had a really cool story, and he obviously invented something. Whether or not it flew or would be considered a sustained, controllable flight is obviously up for debate. So if you have any opinions on it, if you've, you know, done any research on your own or if you want to and prove us wrong on anything, please feel free to let us know what you think. I I was fascinated when I found this because I was like, like I said, I, I wanted to learn more about who the first people to fly were besides the Wright brothers. Right. And I thought if this guy actually did, well, not he, he himself, but if Gus Stamps did fly this guy's invention, I thought he had a legitimate case right. to it. There just wasn't enough, I guess, records of the flight. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode and learned a little bit about the invention of airplanes. Tune in next <laughs> week for more History's B-Side. History's B-Side is an independent, listener-supported podcast. Leave us a review or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting service. And follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at History's B-Side. Send us your feedback or inquire about sponsorship and advertising opportunities by emailing us at podcast at historiesbside.com. You can support the show by becoming a member or making a one-time contribution at historiesbside.com. While you're there, check out our merch shop, extras, and more. This episode was researched and produced by your hosts, Matt Melito and Philip Hall. Thanks for listening to History's B-Side.